This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan. Today, we're chatting with Scott Hickman. Scott and his wife, Annie, run a grazing operation on their property, Oakley, near Canoundra. Together, they run sheep and cattle across 770 hectares with a focus on implementing ecological health principles or holistic management techniques using time-controlled, planned grazing methods. In this episode, Scott explains that after suffering the effects of prolonged dry years, they were looking for a different way of doing things that required less inputs, less financial strain, and ultimately, less stress. Scott tells us about his personal journey and the success they have realised through adoption of holistic management principles, including timed grazing. Scott and Annie have set themselves defined goals and have stuck to these to get where they are today. You'll also hear how Scott is also a grazing officer for Midlochland Landcare, and he's passionate about the importance of group support and mentorship. So this role is a perfect fit for him to share his knowledge and assist peer leaders to work together and connect with other mentors. Local Land Services Senior Natural Resource Officer, Jasmine Wells, caught up with Scott over a cuppa on farm at Oakley. Scotty, tell us a little bit about your place. Our property Oatley is at Canoundra, Central Western New South Wales. We've got 770 hectares here. I've been here for 32 years. Um, I now run the farm with my wife, Annie, and my three kids who are all going doing different things around the country at the moment and different careers and things like that, but they still consider Oatley home, which is fantastic. We practice holistic management principles or ecological health principles, whichever you like to call on the farm these days. That was very different quite a few years ago. And we do run sheep and cattle in a cell grazing operation using time control plan grazing principles. So that's where we are at the moment with what we do at Oatley. And so you said it's different from a few years ago. What was that? How were things going a few years ago? So I suppose really when I look back 32 years ago, you know, I've got a long history in agriculture and the family has, and we're just doing things that normally are done in the area and with agriculture, very industrialised. Half our farm was under some form of cropping, early days of early adoption of minimum till. So we were using advancements in that sort of thing. But we also grazed a lot of animals as well, sheep and cattle. So we had a lot of fingers in different pies over the whole time, a lot of enterprises. We were very married to obviously high rates of fertiliser and chemical and yeah, feeding stock and all sorts of things. So it was probably out of 10 years, probably eight years in the autumn time, we would feed stock. We were lambing during autumn time as well, which was quite interesting as well. But we were kicking some goals. Early on, yeah, we became quite good at cropping. As I said, we were early adopters of minimum till. 2001, we won the wheat and canola competition at Canoundra. <laughs> so that's the first time that had been done. I was a bit shocked by that. And we thought, you beauty, we've got this sorted out. We're in control of what we're doing and we can do whatever we want to do just by adding a bit more to it. Well, we did get sorted out pretty heavily. <laughs> 2005, we got a hailstorm which cut us in half. 2006, I don't know if anybody remembers 2006, but 2006 here, we're 600 mil rainfall and we had about 230 mils for 2006. So we had total crop failures. And I remember an old fellow in the area saying that 
oh, don't worry about this area so much, you're in a really good area and if we have crop failures here, everybody else is pretty bad. But when you get actually a total crop failure with weather situations like that, it doesn't help much. <laughs> that sort of comment and line, we're under the pump fairly well financially. We fed all our ewes through lambing. A really good friend of mine who's now a mentor sort of said, I had the fattest sheep in the area and that was a passion. We were very passionate about our livestock and we wanted to make sure that they were happy and healthy. And Probably the big one for us was we turned our landscape into a desert, which I actually didn't even see at the stage. I was just too busy doing stuff. So I've only got a couple of photos of what it looked like after 2006 and it horrifies the hell out of me to see that now. It just looked like the moon here. And at the end of that time, we sold all our lambs for, I think it was $15 a head or something ridiculous like that. But one thing I do remember clearly about that, which was probably one of the first steps of making a bit of change, was when those B-doubles rolled out of here with those lambs on, what the pressure off my shoulders went, just to know that I didn't actually have to look after those lambs and they were going to, to grass in another area, was huge. So that was a bit of a moment where we sort of went, okay, well, that's a decision we can actually make to do that without huge consequences. It just meant the pressure off us. Didn't realise I was under so much stress. But lo and behold, 2007, we thought we'd do it again and we copped another hailstorm and that wiped us totally out. So that we had to reevaluate what we're doing here. So I decided then, a really good friend of mine actually said, oh, look, there's a holistic management course or a grazing and farming for profit course on in Cowra. Would you come along? The great Terry McCosker's teaching it. And I had been to a couple of courses and my brother was a very early adopter of holistic management. So I knew all a bit about it. And my wife and I had, had done a previous course. We just didn't quite sink into it. And I think it comes back that we just weren't ready for that change at that time. So off I went with my mate Dave Walker to this course. And I reckon within 20 minutes, I wanted to stand up and tell Terry McCosker, say, where the hell have you been my whole life? Because it just made sense. So I had an educator and a sort of a mentor and a process that actually made sense. I suddenly realized that what we were doing at home was not who I was as well and my family. So Came home with a whole heap of different ideas and thought processes and visions and goals of where we wanted to head to and passions about my farm, basically, and my, my piece of land that we live here. I'm so lucky to live here. But it became a really something to set goals to sort of say, well, this is the way we want it. This is the way we want to live. And it became very obvious for me that for future generations of people and people in agriculture and people in general, we have to have happy, healthy landscapes. For generations, not just one or two. So a big goal is to look after the landscape and obviously make it better than when we took it over. And that's been a big driving force in the way we think and what we do at home at, here at Oatley. So you came back all excited with a heap of ideas, which I hear a lot. And that can be the downfall of, for some people a little bit. Come back excited and they just start implementing everything. And that can be quite costly. So my question is, What's the first thing you did and would you do it differently? Like, did it work for you? What's your advice for people out there that are thinking they need that bit of a change, how to go about it? Number one for me is you've got to be ready. If you're not ready to make that change, I get asked this question a huge amount is how do we get more people to make change and continue to do it? One is you've got to be ready. It's like the old saying, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. So if you're not ready, you can spend as much money as you like on someone to try and get change happening. So you got to be ready. For us, it was actually finding the right education for a start, which was a really big one. And also after that, the support networks, which we'll touch on a little bit in a little while with, with Midlockham was really important to a mentorship. But we came home and I immediately put a grazing chart into place just to work out to see what was going on. And it was pretty clear that yeah, we were exceeding our carrying capacity, our stocking rate was exceeding our carrying capacity, especially when you throw in half the farm and crop as well. 
So my benchmark figures on an RCS grazing chart went to the ceiling and that was a pretty clear indication that we had a few issues to sort out there. So we actually did destock for a little bit. We destocked not the whole farm. We just got back to where we knew we had grass. So we learned how to grass budget. And my wife was very clear in saying that out of the first course that she did, she said, we're never going to hand feed again. So that was one of her really passionate things. She could see what was happening in 2006. So that was very clear. So that was a step where I sort of said, well, okay, well, we're going to have to have a grass bank here somewhere and make sure we have enough grass to feed our animals. We went pasture cropping for a couple of years just to try and wean our country off some high rates of fertiliser and chemical. When I look back at the chemical list, it was pretty big and the fertiliser just kept increasing each year. So we know that we've potentially got huge amounts of phosphorus and stuff in our soils as well from that history as well, but we'd had to get off that treadmill. So we actually went pasture cropping for three years, I think it was. A little bit of income, but also just to kickstart some ecology to get stuff happening in our landscape as well. But probably the biggest one was that was just, I can't stress this enough, the importance of grazing animals. That was our biggest tool that we used on Oatly to actually start to get some ecological change. It also meant that we could put some numbers to a grazing chart to actually help with that decision making as well. But the other one too was actually the goals we'd written down. We were pretty, I'm always say that goals are really important, goals and visions. Or if you've done holistic management, it might be context. You revert back to them. So it can be just simple things like 100% ground cover. I was really big on retaining all the moisture that fell out of the sky. Soft, spongy soils that are growing and healthy. Happy, healthy animals I think is a really important one as well. So all these little things that we had written down, if you've got them written down, you actually tend to, it's like a rudder on a boat, it'll take you the right course through that. So they were really big ones for us to do. So grazing animals became the big tool combined with rest, obviously, in, in country to re-energise the soil and get it going. And it exploded. It did really explode for the first three or four years of a lot of annuals and all that sort of thing. How are you using those animals differently to a conventional? Yeah, so once we did the grazing chart, we actually shoved everything together in one mob, which some people do and some people don't. We actually did that, so we got a bit of impact as well. But it also meant that basic numbers of if you put your stock in one mob, you're creating recovery behind you. You can grass budget ahead of you to see how much grass you've got. And that means three or four, five months, whatever it could be ahead. So just the management style of things makes things a lot easier. We didn't do a lot of fencing straight up. We decided to use what we had, but we soon realised that water was an issue. We started to run out of water so and our water system wasn't great. So that was probably our major expense pretty well in the first four or five years was to put a new water system in. And were you on dams before that? dams in a creek and the creek went dry in 2006 which I had yeah they all say around here never happens so it actually did go dry so that put a bit of pressure on what stock we had here and it went very yeah it's punky and stinky so we actually went wholehearted and put a bore in the house side here with 10 k's of two inch pipe and did a bit of work over the road with a solar pump as well so that made a huge difference then we started to do some fencing so we could create more paddocks which in turn gives a bit more impact, but also means you're creating more recovery time. So that was the big one. So wire and water definitely works. So that was a really big decision for us. People always say, what's the hardest bit when you come out of or into new, something a little bit different? And for us, there's a couple of things that you sort of look at and go, so you see these happening, it's a really hard thing to appreciate. And one is looking for what you want. 
so in the landscape looking for what you want and it's probably similar in business and everything I suppose looking an outcome of what you want is always hard but if you can get your head around that you'll achieve it so looking in a landscape at plants you want so all these weeds and stuff that I've been spraying for probably 20 odd years became a very important tool in our landscape they were repairing the landscape and adding energy and all those sorts of things and you stopped focusing on them stop focusing on them focus on the ones that we actually wanted and the other one is plant succession it's amazing it takes a bit of time but when you actually see it happening it's mind-blowing to see other species of plants come in and it's a bit of a correlation there obviously as your soil improves in our case you know we had a lot of compacted soil that wasn't alive it was pretty dead as the depth of the soil increased we tended to get these much better species of plants coming at the top. So we're lucky here we have a mix of some introduced, some native, and they all play a balance in the the whole process of running the farm, biodiversity and all those sorts of things. So then it became the next one, I suppose, for us is having green plants for as long as we can on our farm and in our ecosystem because they're the cyclers. If we've got green plants, they're cycling. And it's really important. Ground cover's really important. But by gee, if you can have thick green plants growing for majority of the year, that's far more important than that. But you've got to keep your soils covered, and we know that. So as I say, one of ours is 100% ground cover, but we're moving a little bit more now into saying, well, now that succession's happening, plant diversity is really important too. How do we manage that to increase that? And that's happening. There's heaps of plants here, especially summer plants, warrigos and arm grasses and red grasses and things like that have turned up that I haven't sown. They've been there. It's just about us creating the right soil condition for them to get a bit of a go, then managing them correct was best we can. I'm not saying I'm the best manager in the world, (laughs) and I haven't yet met anybody yet to say that they know how to manage 100% correctly. And on that, you did say that initially you had a few stuff-ups, but you kept at it. What was it? Was it that ecological change that you could see that gave you that passion to keep working with this system? You could see things were changing pretty heavily and that to me was the first thing when you're coming out of a pure fallow crop and then all of a sudden you've got something growing, grass growing. And animals are happy. That's the other one too. They've settled and you've got them in a bit of a routine, I suppose, as well. But you're growing grass behind you and when you see that actually happening, that's a quite an exciting thing too. And guess what? It's free. That's the other one too. And I quite often look at what we do now and we're trying to use those things that are free, sunlight, rainfall, the small water cycle, which is incredibly important, plants we can grow. But when we look in our soils, that's the key to it, is happy, healthy soils that are growing and full of life and things like that. Whatever we can do to enhance that rather than decrease that is better. And that, I mean, obviously soil carbon's one of those as well. We've sort of got our mindset a little bit now saying we want to increase our soil carbon rather than what we're doing, which was decreasing it seem to be decreasing it all the time so I think that's a really important one too so as we increase our soil make our soil health better and alive and all those things that are interacting in the soil the biodiversity inside of that is really important because it actually shows on the top that's pretty exciting so I but I you know harping back on that little bit about when it did sort of stop a little bit it was probably us then actually adding a little bit more energy of some description in into the soil or into the process just mixing things up rather than getting stuck on a long recovery or a We've done a little bit of multi-species cover cropping as well, which just adds diversity. It's just mimicking biodiversity outcomes that naturally would happen with different plants. And yeah, just making it happen a bit faster. It can help with power pans or compacted soil. And you know, imagine a, what a big broadleaf plant that you stick in the ground does. The amount of energy that thing pumps and the, the root systems that they pump into, into through your soil is just huge. So 
there's always little things that we can tweak to do that. Time of graze, maybe mixing up recovery periods. Different animals too. That's the other one too. I think running just one style of stock is always a bit of an issue. I like to sort of mix up different ages, different breeds, different sheep and cattle. And run them all together. Don't always do that, but that's depending how good your management is on that one. When we first started off, we were gun home. We ran everything together. We tend to mix a little bit up, up now, especially in good seasons. We use some stock to create outcomes for other classes of stock and vice versa. There's a whole heap of things. It's just all this stuff is telling you what you can come up with really and be creative about. And I think that's the exciting thing about what we do as well. And then both of your goals was to not feed. And I actually came up to Canal during the last drought and this is a beautiful area. I'm from a lot further west from here and I just picture this as always green and amazing. You guys never have a tough time, but it literally was a green drought. There was just no feed around generally speaking. So what happened with you guys in that? If we go back to that drought, which everybody's gone through on it, don't really like the term drought, it's the dry period. <laughs> That's where our grazing planning was. We couldn't have done it without it. We didn't hand feed. We didn't even put a supplement out or anything. We tried to match our stocking rate to carrying capacity the best we could. And we made decisions a fair way ahead with some clear cutoff dates if we needed to. The country here in the Canada area was looking pretty ordinary. There was a lot of dust storms and things like that, but that was for most of the state as well. But we actually kept stock on until early February 2020. Had a pretty clear date as to when we wanted to de-stock if we needed to. And we were down to 100 head of cattle. And I had them booked into a feedlot, so they went. But the place was covered and it was quite ironic. We had a big storm come through here. We had 50 mils in 20 minutes. I happened to be coming home with a phone and a camera and took a few photos. And I sat on the way home, I suddenly went, oh, I wonder what Oatloo looks like after this event. So I drove in and that we had de-stocked at that stage, which ended up only being two weeks. But we drove in and I went, I don't think we've had the rain. So I went up and checked the rain gauge and, yeah, the rain gauge was just pouring out everywhere. It was So the water actually, that was a really big, fantastic feeling for me that actually to see when you get tested like that. And then it sort of, it, yeah, we'd start to get rain and things started to change and we started to restock about two weeks later. Probably didn't stock enough, but we started to. Everybody was very gun-shy at that stage. So there were some telltale signs there that things were working, the water cycle was starting to work and obviously we had a bit more carbon levels and the ground cover was playing a critical role but the actual density of the grasses in that ground cover were really important too. So we still got, at the moment, we don't have a full dam on the property. I haven't had a full dam on the property for I don't know how long now. Too much grass. It is a bit like that. It's sort of good and bad. It's fantastic that the water's doing what the water's meant to be doing and it's allowing plants and all that sort of thing to work. You're married to a water system a little bit. That's the only problem with it. you just got to make sure that everything's working okay there. Fine in the winter months, but if we got to heat times, you just got to be a little bit careful. But that's a really big indicator that the cycling of the landscape is starting to work as it should and probably did before we got here many moons ago. But that was a really big telltale sign for us, that one. I think that's one of the common comments we get from people who've moved into this system is that they then have to get water because then dams aren't filling. And usually when I'm talking to people is, yeah, you do say to them, how's your water? Oh, yeah, we've got heaps of dams and things like that. And so, well, in five years that might change pretty heavily. It might change a bit earlier than that too. So really start to think about, and water's a funny one too. I think our whole water system cost us $80,000 or something like that, which people sort of balk a little bit at. And I go, well, I've got a tractor sitting in the shed that's probably worth 120 grand. It doesn't get used every day. Yeah, it doesn't get used every day. And depreciation on the tractor is far more than what the water is. And the actual water's probably increased the value of the farm. 
it's a no-brainer. You need clean, clear water that's available quickly when you need it. We've got some permanent troughs, we've got some mobile troughs, but it's a bit of a mix of both, but it's critical. If we haven't got water, we've got some big issues, so it's important. But I suppose when you look back in the old days, like if they ran out of water, they'd destocked or the stock died. Nowadays, it's quite different. That means that you actually have to ramp your management again. If you've got available water too, you actually have to make sure that you've got enough grass to balance that into that decision-making as well. So there's a whole heap of things you still got to keep in the air. And so you've got a really interesting role with Mid-Lachlan Landcare that you briefly mentioned before. It was quite ironic when we first started doing what we're doing, Mid-Lachlan Landcare was looking for a person to facilitate a role with a project called Growing the Grazing Revolution. Well, I was pretty lucky that I stuck my hand up and ended up with the facilitator's job for that. So that was great because it was really good for me too because it meant that I was in the process of making some quite big changes on the farm and it meant that I was learning with other people as well but also we had some great peer leaders that were incredibly important in that role as well. The project started oh, many, a long time ago. I've been doing this for about 12 years now with Mid Lachlan. But it started way before that with a group of young farmers south of Cowra, down around Kurawatha, who came home after doing some training. They were really early innovators, so my brother was probably in that group as well. So he's probably looking 30 years ago when Gus and Anna changed over. And they were looking for supporting each other. So they actually started their own groups up and they'd go to each other's property and have discussions about decisions they were making on the farm and how they were going to implement these changes and what they were seeing and observing and little bits and pieces of help with that. So... That's where it sort of initially started. Mid-Lockland was asked about what project would you do if we ran some money and they came up with this idea. Well, it sat on the shelf for quite a while and then 12 years ago, now Lachlan CMA and Mid-Lockland got together and said, look, we have a, this project we can pull off the shelf called Growing the Grazing Revolution where we want to support farmers in producing really good landscape outcomes but also being profitable and good things for the community and all those sorts of things and have, you know, really good healthy animals and help with people with that decision-making using a peer leader idea where you can use people who've got a lot of experience, bring them to grazing meetings and catch-ups and things like that and sharing their knowledge. So it's a really sharing basic knowledge of outcomes that people are doing and management people are doing. So you've got 10 or 15 farmers in a group and most of them nowadays would have somewhere between 30 and 40 years worth of experience. So that's where it sort of started and I was lucky enough to be employed one day a week to do that. We've got a series of grazing groups. We do field days. We help people to education points or organise education, field trips. But it is all based around peer leaders helping others but the other big one for that is mentorship as well. And I think that's probably the one that's come out very heavily for me, I think, because when I first made the change, there was a lot of people who were mentors to me and probably you didn't even know but then all of a sudden it just clicked that you had something with them but they were so willing to take you under their arm and share knowledge so it's become very much a mentorship role now where people are comfortable it's about getting people comfortable with that position where they're going to do that what about getting people comfortable asking the questions in that group yeah we start pretty basic and i've always said that for this to work we want to encourage people to come along it's not exclusive. We don't preach anything. We just sort of say, look, come along, have a discussion. What are you doing? We try and make it seasonal as well so people can deal with issues that are happening at the moment or planning ahead. It might be a winter planning session. Have you got enough grass? Some people are still cropping, so what cropping are you putting in? How do you think you're going to get to the point that you want to get to with the animals you've got? And also what's worked well? 
that's the other one as well. So it's really interesting on, on that side of things and, it, and we try and include anybody. I would never say nobody turn up to these things because I think it's really good. And it's really, I think the exciting thing for me is when I started 10, 12 years ago, there was people who started after me and they've overtaken me now. And that's awesome. Yeah, so they come to a grazing meeting or get together and they're talking stuff that gone past what I'm doing and I just go, just, oh, just, it's such a great feeling. And to be, I never considered myself a mentor either up until probably two years ago, which is probably, I didn't even come into my thinking about it. But during the drought, the exciting thing for me was people ringing up and saying, look, I just wanted to talk to someone about some of the decisions we're making. I don't want you to answer it, but I just want to run past someone. And yeah, I'd usually say, well, who are you speaking to this about? All my family. And we'd get beautiful. What are you thinking? Nine times out of 10, they'd worked out what their plan of next decision making was, but it's just, they just wanted someone to run it past. It just gives them that confidence as well. And knowing that they can trust people within the group like yourself. Exactly. And it's not always just me either. There's the peer leaders we've got quite often will shove people onto them too, which is really important because not everybody's the same. It's a bit like finding the right educator. Not every educator is the same as each other. You'll hit it off with someone that's going to suit your style of learning as well. And it's no different to having a mentor or a peer leader or someone that actually can help you out as well. So I was probably lucky too, because my wife always says that I landed the perfect job that I talk underwater with a mouthful of marbles. So it's, she goes, it's great that you, can, you get paid to go and talk to people and show a bit of passion and a bit of support and that sort of stuff. And yeah, it's been great. I've really enjoyed the last 12 years. It's been terrific. And so what makes that successful? So you're in a group. It's really easy to be in a group and get excited and learn. What happens when people go away? Because they have to implement those things as individuals or just with their family. How do we keep that momentum going from a group situation to implementing that on the ground as individuals? Yeah, that's an interesting one. And it's very time consuming. There's no doubt about that. When we were trying to work out how to get this project up and really kicking along, I actually spent a lot of time at kitchen tables with people. I probably spent the first six months saying, what do you think about this idea? Where do you think this can work? Would you like to be involved? all those sort of really simple questions. This is the resource we have. This is the time we have. These are some of the outcomes that we feel are probably pretty important to the area. So how does that work? So they were very obliging with their information. On supporting other people, yeah, look, you know, I have done in the last 12 years huge amounts of time on the phone talking to people, one-on-one stuff, but also taking peer leaders to on-farm to help out. And nine times out of 10, it's just that a little bit of confidence. If it's a grazing chart, like we've got a heap of those going here over the last 12 years. And it's just usually just a little bit of understanding what the numbers actually mean, the process that you go through so that you can simply implement that decision making. And don't be scared to actually ask someone if you think it's not right or get someone out to say, can you help me with the grass budget? I just need to refocus. And we do that quite often every year, just another catch up to say, right, who needs a retune? And that's really important. We did a grass project a couple of weeks ago. There was four of us and we all came out with a different answer. And that doesn't matter. It's an objective view of how you measure grass. And you'll find sheep and cattle blokes are different for a start because, you know, I mean, different bulks and all that sort of thing and different types of grass they're looking at. doesn't matter. You'll soon know once you've moved the animals whether you've made the right decision. And after, yeah, after about three moves, all of a sudden you'll go, I'm overcooked, undercooked, or I'm actually pretty happy where I am with that. So you can really calibrate yourself up. There's only a few things that can be wrong. One is you're out with your budget. The size of your paddock is not correct. Or your DSE's out. They can all have big influences on what you're leaving behind. But they're things you can change on the go pretty quickly as well. And it's nice to have that sounding board. Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, we still 
And as I say, with mental stuff, I've got mentors I talk to every week. And during the drought, it was the same thing. Yeah, we'd always just ring up, make sure you're okay and yeah, how you're looking on the farm and what's happening. And it was getting pretty long after two and a half years. It was starting to bite in a little bit, <laughs> but it was actually quite nice to do that. And the other one that's come out really heavily in the grazing group stuff is the social outcomes as well. So people coming along as a social outlet, realising that, yeah, we're all in the same boat, a lot of us. It removes that isolation. Yeah, whether you're doing what we're doing or you're just doing set stocking or heavy high input cropping or whatever else, we're all in, pretty well in the same boat. And that support network, have a cup of tea and a chat, basically, was coming down to that, gets you off. And it, to me, it's that's talking to someone you haven't seen for a while. It's another really important one. That came out really heavily in some of the surveying we did too, just that it's so good to go and catch up with people and just sometimes talk shop, obviously, because we do try and focus it in a shop. And if I can get someone to take a little bit of information home, that's awesome. I used to say that if I could get people to put five mobs into two, <laughs> I'm really excited about that. Or concentrate a little bit on, we had some really good outcomes with ground cover. and Or the other, and the cropping one at the moment is, yeah, I've got people who are very traditional cropping and all of a sudden they've thrown six or seven species together in a cover crop. That's pretty exciting too when you see that happening because they're starting to think a little bit outside the square. So it's about getting that confidence and a little bit of respect because the dynamics change usually if you bring other people into some of those groups as well. All of a sudden you've got to sort of reconnect with someone a little bit different or people feel like that a little bit. And they're all probably at different stages in the process. And we're, so our groups are generally at all stages and I love the people coming in that aren't doing too much because they keep us grounded too. There's no doubt they sort of say, yeah, but what about this? Yeah, they're asking the why. Yeah, and that's good because it brings you back and you go, right, okay, well, let's, okay, let's look at a bigger picture or what have you noticed with some other form of management or decision you've made and what outcomes have you got and things like that. So, yeah, it's about throwing ideas at people too. I mean, I always say that I'm not an educator, I'm not a consultant. <laughs> I facilitate and a bit of a mentor and organise things, but I like to really sometimes throw different ideas to people and then I can marry people up to other people and say, look, these guys have the same situation. This is how they got around that or some of the decision-making. And the other one too is reading, <laughs> getting people to read different material and things like that. It's vitally important. I don't think as farmers we do enough of it. And finding the right place for that material because there is so much information out there, finding what really interests people. and Yeah, and it's not too heavy or and things like that. Yeah, we've all been guilty of sort of some books float some people's mind, some people, some don't, but... In my case, I wasn't a very big reader until I got married and my wife's a school teacher, so that helped quite a bit. <laughs> but I actually quite enjoy reading now and there's always something that pops in my mind and you know, a lot of my books have got little things hanging out of them, which I don't know I'll ever go back to, but it's just a little reminder things that I can go back and actually have a look and see what we learned there and what was the take-home message from something in a book. But it's important. And if you're not into reading, yeah, podcast or iBook or something, I've got a few blokes who you know, do a bit of driving and they stick an iBook on and yeah, they get the same thing and it's, they haven't got to read it themselves but they're listening to it. So I think that's important because, yeah, education is important. It's not the be-all and end-all but it is actually quite important in the process. And what advice would you give for people? So, for example, you've been doing some work with Sarah White over at Condo Landcare and we're lucky enough to have you as our mentor despite the fact that you say that you're not. What advice would you give for a group like ours who's just starting out, you know, we're ticking along pretty well, we're getting a few new people each time, but to keep that momentum flowing and move us on to the next step. I've been lucky enough to do some stuff with other land care groups. I've been up at Upper Lachlan, Borua, a little bit with Little River, but we're looking to go back there at some stage, and Condo as well. I think the big one for us is look after who you 
do look after, number one. That became very apparent with a couple of the other groups that we've done. You're not going to change the world. So the people that want to be involved, look after them, listen to them. What level are they at? Meet them at that level. Always be open to listen to them and listen to their concerns no matter how mundane they might seem or how hard they might seem because there's some pretty tough decisions out there. But look after that group for a start. Be supportive. And that is just being open so that, you know, I always say my phone number's always available for people to call if they want to call and be loved to change the whole area, but you're not going to do that. People have got all for different reasons, are doing all different things, but just look after the people you can look after and support them the best you can. And as I say, listen to them. What do they want? What do they require? There could be all myriad different things, thinking that they might need to get them to a point in their business or the landscape or education or whatever it might be. So really important, yeah, listen, take note, and then help them out as best you can and support them right through it. We'll try. (laughs) (laughs) So on the group scenarios with condo and things like that, if you ever thought about being involved and you would like to be involved, please get in contact with Condo Landcare and Sarah and we'd be more than happy to have you come along and join us and participate and get support and also provide your input as well because I think that's really important. That's what we're all after. So if you're interested, please come along. So there's a website for Condoblin and Districts Landcare and how would people get in contact with you, Scotty, or with Midlochland? Have a chat to Sarah. She'd be more than happy to give out my contact details. More than happy to do that as well, so no problems at all. Thank you so much for your time today, Scotty. Really appreciate it. No problems. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.